Hello, this is Pod Academy. No one has ever doubted that truth and politics are on rather bad terms with each other. That was the view of political philosopher Hannah Arendt, the subject of this, the third lecture in the If Projects lecture series, Thinking Between the Lines, Truth, Lies and Fiction in an Age of Populism. The speaker is Dr Dan Taylor of Goldsmiths, University of London. Taking the title of one of Hannah Arendt's own essays, he tackles the testy and troublesome relationship between truth and politics, which seems to be playing out a lot at the moment. I'm going to be kind of focusing on what I like to call the book of Hannah, um, the book of Hannah Arendt, which is just a brilliant guidebook to our times. And I don't know if many of you here are familiar with the thought of Hannah Arendt much at all. <coughs> not my... my Aim is to sort of give a little bit of an overview, not too much, but then land us in the issues, land us in these questions of truth and politics. Along the way, we're going to, um, well, of course, Donald Trump, his daughter's going to make it in there, Ivanka Trump. We're going to talk about Extinction Rebellion. Um, we're going to talk about the Pentagon Papers. But I want to leave us with some questions that I still don't really know the answer to, and that I've been thinking about a lot at the moment, um, worrying ones. So, um, okay, so these are questions that I'm struggling to answer and that I think uh, we're all trying to deal with at the moment. First one's a bit of a, it's a cynical one. And we're going to talk about cynicism as well. Are all politicians just liars? You know, we sometimes get this sense when um, we think about events like MPs' expenses, all the way that there's been a, a very powerful discourse around fake news, critique of the media. We're going to talk about this as well, um, the echo chambers. Now, you're probably thinking not all politicians are liars, but some lie a lot more often than others. And we need to get that too. How do we understand the basis for politicians speaking truthfully if they ever do, which they do, but which ones and why do they do? Oh, and that is already worrying enough, but there's a couple of other questions that I want us to think about as well. Um, again, playing this cynicism point, is there just something about being very powerful or very wealthy which means that you somehow need to obscure or veil the truth, you know, to mystify the conditions of your own power? So that your own position in society somehow seems natural, well-earned, gained through hard work, meritocracy. Oh, which is another worrying one. And then a third one. This is one that I like to think about um, for the seminars as well on Thursday. Is why is truth so important for us if we tend to take the view that politicians lie so often? Why are we still clinging to the truth? Why do we talk about sticking truth to power when our faith in truth is sort of assailed and beaten down at different points? It might not be for you. You might have a kind of faith. That's what we're going to work out today. Um, and this is one of those lines that, I don't know, is sort of spuriously attributed to Winston Churchill. You probably know that line about democracy. Democracy is the worst for systems except all the others that have been tried. Blah, blah, blah. There's, a funny, there's another line from Churchill which I think is quite interesting. Um, you know, the best argument against democracy is a, is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Now, I'm not putting that there because I subscribe to it in any way, but I think a lot of our discussion and awareness and fears around something like Brexit, which we cannot escape from, it's just kind of torture, um, revolve around our, our anxiety around referenda. We're going to talk about populism, right-wing populism, and the democratic vote share that it seems to get. Is there some way that we're getting alienated or scared from the capacity for democracy to deliver things that aren't progressive? Maybe not. Maybe you have faith. Maybe these right-wing populist governments come in and come out. But this is something that's been shaping, interestingly, a lot in recent times. Now, Hannah Arendt, who we're going to get to in a moment, has a lot to say about this truth and politics tension. Um, 
And this is a line that comes up at the beginning of an essay that I'm going to want to focus on and talk about. And then um, I think Barbara circulated, or we're going to circulate the Truth and Politics essay. Um, is, it the, is it of the very essence of truth the impotent? And the very essence of power through the deceitful? There's another line. I'm going to come back to this one a bit later. Um, Robert McNamara. Do we know Robert McNamara? Talking about Vietnam War. There's a really interesting uh, documentary film about him about 15 years ago where he sort of like, owns up to his kind of crimes, um, you know, when involved um, at the helms of government during Vietnam and the organised line. Now this behind us should probably... So McNamara is talking about something that we sometimes say falls under uh, technocracy. I don't know if we've heard this term technocracy before. Ruled by experts. It's kind of dispassionate political administration. Free from emotions, free from prejudice. McNamara says that management is the gate for which social and economic and political change, the change in every direction, is diffused through society. It's quite boring on one level now. <laughs> but on the other hand, I think it's kind of interesting because what does that management mean? Who's doing the managing? There's a sense that the management isn't being done by political representatives who are going to be partisan, they're going to be tainted by bias. But we're going to need experts who don't have a stake in it who adhere to processes, who are dispassionate, who are impersonal. In some ways, that's been a kind of faith in politics that, was, that we saw in the late 20th century, the third wave, Clinton, Tony Blair, and that was disrupted with these populist moments of the last few years. All right, um, let's talk about Hannah Arendt. And I'm going to give you a bit of an overview here. Um, Hannah Arendt is an interesting philosopher. She's got three nationalities, we could say. She was born um, in um, what is then kind of Prussia, Germany, uh, in 1906. As you think of the date, 1906, she, she kind of comes into her 20s, into her 30s. She sees um, the rise of Nazism. She's Jewish. This in itself doesn't quite constitute a nationality, but it constitutes a kind of an ethnic and cultural identity. She doesn't see herself as being Jewish, but she recalls being uh, singled out um, for anti-Semitic persecution when she was a child. She became Jewish by being labelled as Jewish and teased as being Jewish. Over the late 20s and in the, into the 30s, she sees the rise of Nazism and she decides that she wants to investigate its intellectual roots. She has this kind of background as a philosopher. She studies with Martin Heidegger. And it's through her investigations into the roots of anti-Semitism that she ends up being investigated by the Gestapo. She's interrogated. Luckily, initially, she lies. She lies about her research. She pretends that she wasn't involved in any form of um, investigation or truth-telling about the extent of um, anti-Semitism throughout Germany. And she's able to escape. She escapes to France, which is a refugee. Eventually, she finds herself in America and, find, and builds a new kind of life and political identity there. And we'll talk about that in a moment, too. Now, this is another line from Truth and Politics, a bit similar to the one shortly earlier. No one has ever doubted that truth and politics are on rather bad terms with each other. And no one, as far as I know, has ever counted truthfulness among the political virtues. Lies have always been regarded as necessary and justifiable tools, not only the politicians or the demagogues, but also the statesmen's trade. They lie in that and that. This is an old fact. Hannah Arendt continues, why is this so? Why do we expect lying? She continues, what does it mean for the nature and dignity of the political realm on the one side and for the nature and dignity of truth and truthfulness on the other? Are these always just going to be kind of you know, divorced figures? 
Now, behind me, it's a little bit grainy. Boris Johnson um, sort of caught on the line to Yumi uh, Jackson's house. This image is used as um, the cover of a really interesting book by Aaron Davis, who's a sociologist at Goldsmiths, um, about elites. You might have seen this. Boris Johnson gets stuck and he's kind of waving his flags foolishly. Now, Boris Johnson, we might see, is, is only the latest, but perhaps one of the more worrying recent developments of political lying. You know, stuff around the Supreme Court. He lied to our, our dear old Queen. And many other things besides. The bus, the £350 million bus. For those of us that supported Remain in the referendum, this was seen as an egregious lie that therefore invalidated the result. On the other hand, Brexit has said on that project here, there's another series of organised lies to um, mask against genuinely felt antipathy towards the EU. Trump. Trump is a, a liar par excellence. In some ways, what makes Trump's lying so good is that he doesn't really know or care that he's lying. And this is also important. I'm going to give you another topical liar um, in a few minutes' time. The best liars don't know they're lying. They don't believe that they're lying. They believe they, you know, they, they, um, they uh, get high on their own supply. Vladimir Putin, just so we're not focusing on the Western world. And then this figure in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, and the way that he um, reports logging and economic activity and benefits of deforesting the Amazon. Now, when I show a load of images of these powerful leaders who are on the right and tell a lot of lies, it can be a little bit disempowering. I find it sort of paralysing with fear that these people are so popular and influential. And that's also something I want to talk about too and get us through. The fact that sometimes when the powerful are so consistent and so amplified in their lying that it seems that the truth will never out, this makes us lose faith in the democratic process. It needn't do. But it has that effect, and we'll talk about this pessimism side in a moment as well. Now, I'll just get on to Donald Trump. One of the interesting things that's come up uh, for American journalists is trying to catch out when he lies. There's been these like, various fact checks, these tr truth cards, these polls. I think the Washington Post, last time I checked, it's around 12,000 lies that he's told since coming into office. It's a huge amount. What's interesting, this is enough of, uh, kind of Ant's point within American politics is that in some ways it doesn't really matter how many lies he tells because his base is still getting fired up. His core supporters think that the fact that people are calling him out on his lies is just the bias of the liberal media coming out yet again. This points to another thing. This is something else that we're going to get to when basic facts aren't even agreed upon. With Trump, famously there was the, um, the number of people that turned up to his inauguration. And Trump claims that it was the biggest ever, much more than Barack Obama. And then the, behind me, there's these kind of actual photos. People might think that Barack Obama on the left, Donald Trump on the right. Far less. This is one of these early points where Trump said this is fake news. <coughs> I mean, it's, it's a, in some ways, these are facts. <coughs> but what's interesting <coughs> the facts then also become something that could be lied about. The facts also become biased. That's a strange, that's a, a somewhat recent development. That's something that we're going to come back to as well. But again, it might not be so old as we think. I've got some images there uh, from the Soviet Union. And when, when Hannah Arendt is talking about truth and politics, she gives this example of, um, of the deletion, we can say, of Trotsky in terms of the early years of the Soviet Union. We have kind of Lenin here on the top addressing the crowds. Uh, to, the, kind of at the right, to the right from this book, a little bit below is Trotsky, kind of facing the other way. And then in the image, they've managed to kind of rub him out. He's not there anymore. 
There's nothing. I can't remember this guy's name is. It's one of Stalin's kind of lieutenants. There he is, walking with Stalin at the top by the river. In the image below, it's been a little bit sharp, and he's disappeared. Something that is factual. Then it's completely changed. Now, the Soviet Union might just seem like one kind of shocking example, one out there example. But one of the ones that has come, come up recently, and I'll come back to again, is something like climate change. And I don't know if people have been involved in debates. I mean, maybe, I don't want to presume. But the debate around climate change and climate denials, if anyone here believes that climate change is happening, and the evidence is pretty strong, pretty universal. Um, there are those that then say that th these facts about climate change have been cooked up um, by biased you know, experts funded by dubious bodies. Um, Trump talks about global warming this tweet being created by the Chinese. An interesting one, Kellyanne Conway, talks about alternative facts. That's quite scary. That there are facts and then alternative facts that contradict those facts. You can't have facts and alternative facts, you can only have facts. But here, different opposing facts can sit alongside each other. That debate is facts. We might not think that matters so much. This just seems kind of craziness um, that the Trump administration is putting out there. But the argument I'm going to make using Hannah Arendt is that that actually is quite worrying. If the facts are on the attack, <coughs> we've got not much else to bind us together in terms of our shared understanding of the world. Okay, back to Hannah Arendt. Um, I mentioned before about Hannah Arendt's kind of three-part identity, German, Jewish, and then later American. One of the things that really shocks Hannah Arendt is how German intellectual society, the people that she grew up with, were not really that um, active in opposing the gradual rise of the Nazis. This happens in particular with a former teacher, Martin Heidegger, who ends up being a, a kind of an open advocate for Nazism. Why didn't more people oppose something that was so shocking, so contradictory to um, liberal humanistic values? Why did people just, if they didn't support it, not oppose it? Now Hannah Arendt makes it out of France and into Spain. Again, she has one kind of amazing escape story from Germany to France. At the beginning of the Second World War, some of you might know that France comes under a, kind of a collaboration with government, the Vichy regime, very much under German control. It's very far right. And there begins the rounding up of Jewish people in France. Hannah Arendt very luckily escapes again. Her cousin by marriage, Walter Benjamin, some of you might know his work, doesn't escape. He's not able to escape. He takes his own life. He writes the thesis on the philosophy of history on a series of envelopes and gives them to Hannah Arendt. She takes them out, and that's how we have them. She makes it to America and she rebuilds her life quite slowly there. First, she's involved in Jewish refugee organisations. After the Second World War, she's involved in another organisation that are trying to track down Jewish property and artworks and, and return them to their owners. She begins work on a mammoth volume called The Origins of Totalitarianism, which people started looking at again a couple of years ago, because it has a lot to say about lies in our own time. But after that, she writes about this figure here. I don't know if anybody recognises this important architect of the final solution. If not, it's um, Adolf Eichmann. Um, someone who managed to also escape, very luckily, and who hid in Argentina and was eventually um, kind of kidnapped by Mossad, the Israeli Secret Service, and brought to trial in Israel. Quite controversial circumstances. Now, Eichmann's role 
was pretty major in the final solution. He was the, sometimes he's seen as the bureaucrat, but he was really the facilitator of the very complex logistics that enabled um, millions of people to be transported on railways, first into, um, into ghettos in the east of Europe, and then into the death camps. Eichmann escapes and is put on trial in Israel in 1962. And he's asked, why did you do this? And Hannah Arendt visits his trial and she writes about it. Now, Eichmann's defence is what is sometimes called the Nuremberg defence, the defence that was used by Nazis who were arrested a few years before by the Allies, that they were only following orders. So therefore they weren't complicit in these colossal crimes against humanity because if they didn't do them, someone else would have done them. They effectively had a gun to their heads, so they didn't have a choice. Hannah Arendt very interesting takes this argument to pieces. So she quotes um, Eichmann here, Officialese is my only language. In the trial, he presents himself as this sort of innocent bureaucrat who didn't really quite know what he was doing, but was just following orders. But that's not quite right. One thing that Arendt picks out about his defence is that he didn't seem to be ever thinking about what he'd done. He was always talking in these peculiar cliches, and she would say officialese is one of them, because he wasn't really able to face up to what he had done but then he never had really thought about what he had been doing in the first place. Now that might still sound like the Nuremberg defence. You don't think about what you're doing in following orders, and so be it. But for Arendt, that's not enough. There's something quite worrying there. So Arendt, she's, invested, she's um, sitting in on this trial. She, you know, she listens to many hours of, of um, Eichmann in the dock. And she makes a very interesting point about how Eichmann wasn't really able to think. The longer one listened to him, the more obvious it became that his inability to speak was closely connected with an inability to think, namely to, th to think from the standpoint of somebody else, to see another person's perspective, to imagine what it might be like to be transported in a railway to a, a Jewish um, ghetto or to a death camp. He didn't think. Now we're gonna, this leads to this essay that we're going to be talking about, Truth and Politics. She writes um, an essay about Adolf Eichmann, um, the subtitle is The Banality of Evil. You might have heard this phrase, The Banality of Evil, before. Now, what made Eichmann's evil banal or boring was the fact that he never, it's something that anybody could do. Anybody could just not think about the consequences of what they were doing and how many millions could die as, as a result of this. Now, it's a controversial line to take, and Hannah Arendt is attacked by a lot of Jewish organisations for this point. Eichmann wasn't banal evil, he was evil evil, he was pathologically evil because he was, he, he may say that he didn't know what he was doing but he did know, he was just covering it up. It's not right to say that something is horrific and, and not ever realised on this level like the Holocaust was something that could occur at any point. This is a moment of what, in Aaron's own words earlier, is radical evil. So she's attacked at this one position about Hannah Arendt. She, she attacks Jewish community leaders. She says that the leaders of the Jewish ghettos should have organised a fight back. I mean, they did. But the way that she writes about it, she concentrates more on the fact that they did everything they could to keep Jewish people in the ghettos alive, but alive in such a state where they must have known at some level that they would be killed. Again, it's very controversial. She gets heavily attacked for it. She's ostracised in New York, where she's living. And so Truth and Politics is a kind of follow-up essay, it's a kind of response essay to this. Well, she tries to kind of explain what it would mean to 
be evil in a banal way, to not think on a colossal level. So I'm going to go through a couple of the features of this argument, and then we're going to start linking it back to some of the kind of worrying stuff that we're dealing with at the moment. So truth and politics. In the New Yorker, 1967. Now when you, and I hope you did, when you have a look at this essay, about the first three quarters is kind of dealing with uh, philosophy. It's dealing with... Um, dealing with uh, philosophical truths um, rather than these kind of political questions that we're kind of dealing with and worrying about. But what's interesting is what she then, when she talks, I'm going to give you an example in a moment, she talks about situations where a philosopher has one form of truth, what she calls rational truth, a universal truth, 2 plus 3 equals 4, which is a, a truth that's true everywhere. Against these rational truths, she contrasts them with factual truths. Truths that might be true to us, let's say that the central line is a tube line that links West London to East London, which themselves are only facts, which themselves might be true in our point of time, but may not be a fact four or five centuries ago when there's no underground line. They're more every day. You might be thinking, how factual versus rational truths? So I'm going to fill this out a bit more in a second. Now in the past, and, and she talks a lot about Socrates of um, ancient Athens, someone who took pleasure in uh, debating with others in the street, kind of paralysing them into confusion by getting them to, well, pointing out contradictions in what they thought. The philosopher's truth with Socrates was a danger to the state. Socrates famously has to drink the hemlock because he corrupts the youth of Athens. Philosophy was once a danger. Philosophy once was radical enough that it could completely threaten to upturn the, the social order. But now, nowadays, it doesn't. That's her point. Nowadays, with the decline of religious belief, now that philosophy is a much more kind of academic, slightly kind of sidelined, it's not so everyday, it's more of what's an ivory tower pursuit. The real danger <coughs> is not philosophical truth, but it's factual truth. The real facts as opposed to the alternative facts. More. I don't know if anybody remembered um, Donald Trump's right-hand man, uh, Rudy Giuliani, um, making a statement about how the truth isn't truth. If not, it was a few months ago, he was interviewed on uh, CBS, and he came up with this kind of remarkable line, he was, kind of, you know, he was kind of presenting something that really undermined uh, Trump's government. He said, well, this is true, but the truth isn't truth. <laughs> and how do you argue against that? I mean, the truth is true, but if our truth isn't true to him, we're kind of knocking our heads against a brick wall. And we might think this is a brick wall that's very powerful, so us knocking our heads seems quite futile. So then we give up on the possibility of holding the powerful to account. Somehow, the simple truth-telling becomes radical, it becomes worrying. And when we can't tell the truth or see the truth, then we really are a lot weaker than we thought. Now, I want to point, she goes on in this essay, is it becomes very dangerous when what seems to me as a fact, like the central line running east to west, um, is suddenly presented as a kind of opinion, or something that might not be the case. That's when we start getting into unstudied territory. That's when, if you talk, imagine that uh, Donald Trump inauguration ceremony, lots of people, not as many people, Obama versus Trump. If we're left to believe that actually there was um, many people there, um, and I think this is where the alternative facts line comes in, yeah, crowd size. If, suddenly, if we know that there weren't as many people there, but we're told there were as many, then what else might not be true? Suddenly we're doubting ourselves. 
alternative back spin. This is something that we might remember from the Tony Blair years, and we'll talk about Tony Blair in the second two. He's quite an important character in the decline of truth. So let's talk about climate change briefly. I'm going to get to extinction rebellion um, in a little while. About climate deniers, global warming being a hoax. So at the moment I'm teaching this class on environmental ethics and we've been debating the term Anthropocene. I don't know if have people here heard of the term Anthropocene? Some haven't, some haven't. Like anthropology, probably being human, the human shaped era. A new era in the life of the earth because it bears the mark of human activity through an increase. Well, that is getting hotter, more carbon is in the air. Does it begin with the Industrial Revolution? Does it begin with uh, nuclear weapons testing in the South Pacific? Anyway, we're having this discussion, and one of the people in my class is saying, hold on a minute, a lot of these climate scientists, um, you know, actually some of them have been saying that climate change isn't happening the way that we think. There's actually a little bit of disagreement among the scientists. And who's paying for this scientist research anyway? Maybe they're a vested interest. Maybe all these reports that they're producing for the UN are just representing certain industry bodies, certain political prejudices, a liberal bias. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. But when my facts or when our facts are under assault in this way, it's hard to know how to argue back. And this has been an interesting tactic of the um, critique of climate change. That it's, there's too many vested interests. It's something that Donald Trump puts forward. You can see this in numerous tweets. A uh, recent one, um, he quotes this guy in, in, who had been on the Greenpeace that climate science is fake science. Again, it's really out of context, but any kind of information is used to make us doubt what we think. And it's powerful. Because you might have had these conversations too with relatives, with friends about climate change. And you might have heard people saying, actually, Hold on a minute, it isn't getting warmer. What about last winter? Or um, are you sure about this? I've seen that the ice sheets are actually increasing. And then it all gets unsteady. Right, um, a 90s film moment. Not everyone, maybe some of you will know these films. Anyone remember The Truman Show with Jim Carrey? Or the original Matrix, Shana Reeves? Now, what, what links these films, would you say, in your mind? I mean, I, I've put them together with something in mind. Yeah, but the world that we live Lots in. Lots of 90s films. <laughs> <laughs> the but, yeah, and they're, sort of, they're kind of brilliant. There's something quite exciting about the whole idea that the world that we live in is um, it's been kind of socially conditioned. I mean, here it's sort of it's more around technology. But it's a construct. Yeah. It's a, it's a construct of, um, of, our, of our social training. Something like Truman kind of thinks that the world is is normal um, and he's just one person in a batch, he's in a TV show and he's a character. Now it's sometimes said that these kind of allegories are based on one allegory, um, uh, Plato and the cave. Do people know the cave by Plato? <coughs> some people do, some people don't. Um, okay. Plato presents a very interesting thought experiment and what he's trying to prove with this thought experiment is that our basis for truth shouldn't just be based on sense, perception or opinion but based on something that's universally the case. But he does it with this scenario that's a bit like the Matrix, a bit like a, a world that seems real but turns out to be fake. 
how do we know that the reality that we inhabit is what we see is genuinely the case? What if we, the things that we believe, the things that we see, the society around us, why is it the way that it is? Why is it like this and not like something else? How can we explain why we believe something and not something else? In Plato's allegory, he imagines these figures who are, who are shackled together at the bottom of the cave and they're watching a kind of shadow, like, well, not imagine like a the cinema, they're watching these shadow puppets kind of move over the background. They're enthralled by these shadows, they're amazing, they're, they're, they're kind of beautiful and vivid displays, they're surrounded by their peers. Why question this? Now what Plato wants to get to is this idea that just relying on opinion, just relying on what you see, isn't going to be able to, isn't going to help you understand the true nature of reality, the nature of physics, the nature of mathematics. We need to first of all begin by inquiring about the origin. So far our figures in the cave, where are all these shadows coming from? So in the, the allegory, one guy thinks, hold on a minute, how did it get like this? And he manages to kind of climb up. He sees that the uh, shadows are being kind of shown by what looked look like a group of hooded priests, a kind of religious class, who are brainwashing us. That the source of the light of these shadows isn't real light, but it's a kind of fire. Somehow this figure then kind of manages to um, keep moving and climb out. And then he realises that he's been inside a cave, and actually there's a world of genuine sunlight. And when he climbs out, it dazzles him. And he can't, he can't, he can't take in the real world. But then he can. Now, Plato's allegory, as some of you might notice, what happens next? Well, for the man who's escaped the cave, um, if he were to go back in, he would be killed by everyone who's in the cave because they are comforted by their illusions. They don't want the illusions to stop. And they would see the person saying there's a real world out here as a kind of heretic. This is the lonely life of the philosopher. You've probably seen and it's kind of been deliberate. I've been mentioning using the word man. There's a certain aloofness here. This, is, this tells us something about an aloof, Athenian, patriarchal, we might to say nowadays, perspective on philosophy. The philosopher has to bear this truth alone, that reality isn't what it seems, and that we need to understand the world through universal truths, that we get to not through our senses, but through our minds, rational contemplation. This is kind of what we get in The Matrix 2. We have our character, we've got the choice, and it's, um, it's now a thing being red-pilled. Pick the red pill or the blue pill. Do you want to know the truth, or, or is ignorance bliss? He wants to know the truth, and then he realises that human beings are actually in the future century, and they're all living in these pods, and they're kind of s stimulated with drugs, so that they have these amazing lives, but they're not real lives. They're kind of powered by machines. If you haven't seen The Matrix, it's a great story. It, it probably seems quite dated nowadays, but that's quite mind-expanding. Um, Anyway, Hannah Arendt, she's talking about this and she says, okay, this is one truth in ancient Athens. But nowadays we don't, the whole idea that there might be one universal truth that we can get to, we might not necessarily have that faith. We might see that as someone that's Eurocentric. We might see that as someone that belongs to Plato but not for the average everyday Greek. We might see it as it represents a certain culture, a certain period in time. That the truth that the philosopher sees is actually just another form of opinion. And when Hannah Arendt is contrasting um, Plato, um, she's got in mind what we might say is the truth of, of one figure. Um, I don't, do we know Rodin's The Thinker at all? Okay, so this kind of lonely, kind of 
again, a very male figure involved in kind of uh, contemplation. And the thing on the left is something that we might hear about next week um, when Marina talks to us about um, populism and the situation in Greece, uh, Syntagma Square. Truths that are realised by the collective. Truths that are realised by people working together democratically. Truths that aren't just a truth for one philosopher speculating on their own, which is, you might think is very prone to delusion, but truths that we can agree on and share. Now, this is a rational, factual truth separating Aaron and getting to. Again, it's the factual truth that she's worried about. She wants to protect these factual truths. This is something quite interesting. I'm going to pick out a couple of the bottom points here. Whereas in philosophy we're used to trying to think about speculative thought and thought in solitude, we now need to work out how we're going to defend public thought and collective thought. In some kind of small way, like the kind of thought or thinking that we do together, like the same seminar, like the same seminars here. We might not necessarily agree in our viewpoints about one given issue, but the fact that we're thinking and agreeing and disagreeing is what counts. We're putting our thinking to the test. This is the kind of political thought, as Arendt would call it, that she wants to champion. Now, for Hannah Arendt, let's drop the whole Plato model. Let's drop the old-fashioned philosopher knows the truth on their own model. And let's start thinking instead about public truths. Let's think about spaces of, of collective deliberation, democratic practice. These are slightly woolly terms, I'm going to fill them out in a second. So as well as that, let's stop trying to have it all focus on the individual. And when we're doing our thinking about politics or society, we need to start imagining ourselves in the perspectives of others. Might sound like a platitude, but she, for her it's absolutely vital. She calls it cultivating an enlarged mentality. And she spells out what it's going to mean. This is, this is also from Truth and Politics. This is what political thought should be. It shouldn't be contemplative. Hannah Arendt. Political thought is representative. By forming opinion, by considering a given issue from different viewpoints. By making present to my mind the standpoints of those who are absent. The more people's standpoints I have present in my mind while I am pondering a given issue, and the better I can imagine how I would feel and think if I were in their place, the stronger will be the capacity for representative thinking, and more valid my final conclusions, my opinion. This is something that maybe we, maybe not all of us, but maybe sometimes we lose, we lose practice of doing this, working out this internal representation of other people's viewpoints who disagree with us. It's, it's stepping outside of our own echo chambers and into other people's echo chambers, even if we are offended or annoyed by what we encounter there. It's hard, but it's necessary for, for the kind of politics that Hannah Arendt wants to champion, which is the kind of democratic politics. Now, I talked about Hannah Arendt's three nationalities, and the American one is quite interesting. As she gets older, she um, focuses and does more and more research on American politics. She's very interested in the Constitution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's very interesting how the American Revolution came about. So she takes the line that we sort of take on. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Now, how, what counts here is not the, what the actual truths are, but it's that we hold these. But the fact that we hold them shows that we, there must have been at some point, I mean, it's a bit imaginary, there must have been at some point a kind of a collective discussion about what we believe and what we think 
a working out of what truth, what principles you want to adhere to and what we want to challenge. We're not going to get to the truth on our own, but we're going to get to the truth collectively. Now to get there, if you imagine these public spaces, there's going to be agreement, but there needs to be disagreement. When Hannah Arendt talks about democracy, she's not talking about consensus. If we don't all get to one viewpoint, it's good to have a minority viewpoint. Sometimes it's good if we have a meeting and we don't come out with any agreement at the end. At least we've done that collective working out together. It might sound woolly this, I'm sure you've all been in meetings where it's actually really annoying when it, where things aren't getting agreed. But it's, this is the <coughs> difficulty of democracy. Sometimes, <coughs> and especially now, we might not want to face up to that difficulty because other people's viewpoints can be so annoying, they can be so threatening. They can be so based on lies. Now what about our lies? What about our facts? There's always a lot of ancient Greeks in how I was writing. She um, often talks about Socrates. Now Socrates, one of his nicknames in Athens was uh, the Stingray. Because it was believed that um, when he would quiz people and point out the contradictions in their thought, it paralyzed them. In Greek, this is called aporia. We have this word aporia nowadays. Aporia is kind of confusion, paralysis. Now, for Socrates, this is amazing. He, he calls, Socrates calls himself a midwife of the truth. He, doesn't, he says he doesn't believe in anything, but he's going to enable other people to give birth to their ideas. Of course, he does believe in a lot of things. But what makes him powerful is that he can kind of point out the contradictions in what we're thinking. Now Hannah Arendt uses Socrates in different ways and she gets us to another point which might be familiar to political discussion nowadays. I don't know if anyone's ever been in a kind of meeting or situation where somebody's presenting you three options, A, B and C. A might be one extreme, B might be another and C is somewhere in the middle. Someone's called, in politics you might also call it triangulation. That you kind of fit your discussion around what people, what people think. But when you do that A, B, C thing, the C, the middle of the road thing, might not really be the middle of the road. It might actually be your own viewpoint that you've conveniently kind of put between the two poles. Hannah Arendt sees this as, a, as another form of paralysis. When people are given, bamboozling us with all these options, we start losing track of what we think. I'm going to move on to lies um, now and, and delusion as well. Now Tony Blair is an interesting figure, we're going to have enough of kind of possible lie in a second. Now I might say that Tony Blair doesn't believe that he ever lied about Iraq and the, and the weapons of mass destruction. He might say that he was acting on the evidence at the time. Now there was a lot of evidence that was against the evidence that he was looking at. But Blair can sort of then exist in the kind of parallel reality in which he sticks, sticks to the untruths that kind of led into this catastrophic war. Now, delusions are interesting. Hannah Arendt in this essay start, then moves on to lies. Now, facts are just facts, whereas lies are interesting. If I lie about something that isn't the case, she would say, I'm trying to transform the world. I'm trying to change reality so it fits my agenda. Now, facts are always messy. Facts based on people being able to demonstrate it, being able to kind of prove it with testimony. Sometimes a fact can be hysterical. I'm using this phrase from a 
book, I don't know if anyone's come across it, uh, David Wallace Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth, about our climate crisis. Well, David Wallace Wells wrote a great um, essay in The New Yorker just setting out the kind of sheer horror uh, that faces us in this century as a result of rising carbon emissions and climate change. And he points out all this stuff, wildfires, heat death, I mean, this is a terrifying read, but it's based on evidence. This is a fact of hysterical. The facts, if this is all true, which the evidence suggests it is, it points to something that we cannot possibly imagine. Now, lies, by contrast, can sometimes fit our reality much better. Interestingly, Hannah Arendt says it's sometimes easier to lie, because I can lie and, not, and say something that conforms to your expectations. It might not be shocking. Sometimes the world of lies is, is, is safer than the world of truths. You might think about white lies. I'm hoping that you're all more virtuous than me. But certainly in my life, I've told something that isn't quite the truth to spare some of these feelings. Now, on an innocent level, you, you might ha- you know, have some of these kind of home cooking. It doesn't taste that great. You think this is lovely. It's delicious. It's polite. It's not quite true. But it doesn't matter because the lies, you might think that's not quite a lie. But the lies, there's some kind of prudent, prudent about lying. It doesn't hurt people. But if we continue lying, where does that get us? Now, George Orwell, often invoked. I'm guessing people here are familiar with the, um, the plot of 1984. Most of you I'm seeing, but some of you might, might not be, but I'm guessing most of you are. A kind of dystopian, totalitarian society. Orwell writes this when well, it comes out in 1948. Is he talking about Nazism? Is he talking about the Soviet Union? Is he talking about Britain and at war? What's interesting about 1984 is that certain things that are factually true, not even universally true, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, become under attack. Under the great onslaught of brainwashing, 2 plus 2 can become 5. War can be redefined as peace. The book deals in all these ranging redefinitions in which people um, become so overwhelmed by the sheer power of the state and the way that it permeates their lives through surveillance that opposing it is impossible. So we get these kind of moments here. This is from the 80s film. We have become captured in the collective delusion. I know every every year or two it kind of comes up. You know, are we living in 1984? Have we got, are we long past that point? Now, Hannah Arendt doesn't bring up Orwell, but she talks about what she calls image making. That there are lies, and then there are people that tell lies all the time. You might think of Donald Trump, who produce organised lying, lies that fit all the other lies, so that in the end there are kind of an alternative reality in which the the lies fit together into something that's quite consistent. Now, this is the scary bit. This is the totalitarian bit. When you have a whole system of lies and a whole network of powerful lies that all agree with each other, even though what they're saying doesn't seem to be true. How do you oppose that? How do you oppose a figure like Big Brother in 1984? Now, I'm just going to focus on the bottom of these two points. All these lies, whether their authors know it or not, harbour an element of violence. Organised lying always tends to destroy whatever it is decided to negate. Lying transforms the world. Lying does violence to the world. Famously, and now it probably has this in mind book burning in Nazi Germany. Let me give you a slightly more, I don't know, a strange one. Events that we're living through at the moment. Boris Johnson, the proroguing of Parliament, and the Supreme Court which considers this unlawful. 
we can look at different publications and get two completely different versions of the same kind of event. This is The Guardian, Raphael Baer. The verdict's in, Boris Johnson's a lie, he should pay the price. Look at the Daily Mail, right when he saw in Andrew Roberts. Boris Johnson can beat the surrender parliament, he can have a government strike. It's possible by the, the choice of our publication to inhabit a different kind of reality in which certain events have a complete, not just a different spin, but a completely different basis. This is something that we see more and more, this polarisation, not just of politics, but of, tr- of, w- of mental worlds, of truth worlds. So that in the end we can't speak the same language to each other because we don't agree on the same facts. Now this is when it gets really scary. This leads to what Hannah Arendt calls cynicism. The surest long-term result of brainwashing is a peculiar kind of cynicism, an absolute refusal to believe in the truth of anything. Now this is what organised lying can do. This kind of passivity, this powerlessness, this kind of despair. I'm going to just move... I'm going to explain these graphs. They might be a little bit grainy. These, these are from research done by Yasha Monk from a couple of years ago about our kind of um, young... It's different age groups... Um, belief in democracy. Now, on, on this graph, there's a question there asked is, having a democratic political system is a bad or very bad way to run a country? Now, you can probably see that they're kind of going up. Um, that from left to right, we see this kind of increase. Now, interestingly, the left is older people and the right is young people. So this belief that democracy is bad is increasing the younger you go. This is um, from research from 2016. So Maybe it's got worse, I'm not sure. But they've got enough data to kind of make a contrast um, for Europe and America from the mid-90s up until 2010 to 12. And in both cases, young people compared to 20 years ago, 20 years ago, are far more likely nowadays to say that democracy is a bad way to run things. This is something slightly similar, it's a, bit, a lot smaller. Um, people that, essentially people that believe it's essential to live in a democracy. In each case, because the numbers are going down. Now you might think of democracy and truth telling are these kind of aren't these not slightly different? One could argue that a declining faith in democracy isn't necessarily something that points to the emergence of, an, of, a, of fascism in some way. It might actually point to the fact that democracy is kind of rigged in favour of capitalist elites. You might read it from a, from a left-wing perspective. I think it's a fair reading to make. Uh, I think I'm more towards the end, unless it's a really quick follow up. Yeah, let me see. Yeah, so this is it's really grainy. So it's decade of birth. So the, on the left, you've got the 1930s, and on the far, you've got the 1980s. So again, it's the older people where it's kind of higher, because it's faith in democracy. But those that are born in the 1980s, the millennials, it just sinks down and down. It would be very interesting. I mean, this is, measure, this is based on surveys from 2011 to 12. It would be very interesting to get this kind of reproduced for now. Will it have gone down more and more? I'm not sure. Possibly. I'm going to start wrapping up um, in about in a couple of minutes. So I just want to get through um, a couple more bits. This is slightly different. Uh, this is a, um, a woodcut illustration uh, from Fyodor Dostoevsky's uh, The Brothers Karamazov. How does that relate to this? Um, so there's this interesting line, um, or at least in, not in the current translation, but the old translations. 
this moment where one of the characters says, if God is dead, all things are permitted. If, if in the story, if we have lost belief in God or belief in any kind of universal truth system, does that mean then that we no longer have any kind of firm basis on what is true altogether? Does this take us, if we lose God, many of you here might be atheists, might be, no, hold on. But this is one thing that the book explores. If we lose our agreement with universal truths, I would call it a position of relativism, where anybody's truth is as good as anybody else's. Now one of the things that challenges this a bit is something like the Holocaust. So let's go back to that. Very important for Hannah Arendt. She loses a lot of friends and family. I don't know if people know the David Irving trial. There was a film with Timothy Spawn about it a couple of years ago. So there might be something where the facts should surely speak for themselves. Uh, um, many millions of Jews were taken to death camps and murdered. But in David Irving's historical research, he says, hold on a minute, these were invented. They were faked. Um, you know, they were kind of produced by, by the Poles. Um, they were exaggerated by historians subsequently. They were exaggerated by um, kind of particular interest groups. Now, very curiously, this then goes to trial. So some of you might know the Irving trial. And in this trial, they have to say, what is it? What is objective history? And so they have to kind of spell this out. The historian, uh, Deborah Lipstadt, says, David Irving's a liar. And so David Irving tries to sue her and say, hold on a minute, you've got to prove that I'm lying. Otherwise, that's liable. So she has to prove that the Holocaust did happen. So she gets together all these experts, um, and she kind of makes the case, and this, thankfully, David Irving's defeated. Now, this, we might say, is a victory for the facts. Here we have one person saying that the facts are not the facts, the facts are alternative facts. But Deborah Lipstadt and I say, no, this did happen. But one of the dangers, we might say, of, of sheer relativism is that even events of real significance are suddenly doubted. Then we get into the world of conspiracy theories. And this is also something that's very present at the moment. Okay, I told you that Ivanka Trump would make it, and she does. Um, she, this is a tweet of Ivanka's. She's quoting out of Einstein, apparently. Um, if the facts don't fit the theory, change the facts. And it's a good insight into the Trump world. Now, Einstein never said this, and there was a nice follow-up on Twitter. Um, don't believe everything you read on the internet, Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Now, this is the, world of our, the scary world of alternative facts. I'm going to skip a little bit and get us to... Back to Blair and back to this. I don't know if anybody knows the story of David Cameron and the Shepherd's Hut, in which he's written his memoirs. Now, when faced with the, the lying on an organised scale, the bit that I just skipped through there is from a separate essay Aaron writes on the Pentagon Papers, where it's kind of proven through a big leak that um, the American administration lied about its involvement in Vietnam. Now, when we're faced with organised lying by the powerful, it can lead to a kind of despair. The future is nasty. These vested interests, Boris Johnson, he's very popular, I and mean, some of you might have seen the polling. We might think that the polls are not quite true. But there is certainly an appetite for this kind of powerful belief systems. Trump as well. Now, Hannah Arendt doesn't want us to be filled with despair, okay? This is the bit where we can get filled with hope. <laughs> Now, you can't really defeat truth. And that's her point towards the end of this essay. Persuasion and violence can destroy the truth, but they can't replace it. We can lose the courage of our convictions. We can doubt ourselves, 
But we can't, that then can't become a new truth for us. It's just that we no longer believe in the truth, but we don't believe in the parallel truth. Now for Hannah Arendt, there's a way out of this, and this is what we're going to explore. This is the feel-good kind of injection at the end. That against this kind of terrifying world of, of media manipulation, we might say, there is what she sees real politics. She calls it the actual content of political life. Now this is democracy. This is when we get together and collectively think and agree and disagree. Something like that. This is when we step outside of our echo chambers and are confronted with the other, for better or for worse. Now she sees it as for the better. The joy, this is the quote, the joy and the gratification that arise out of being in company with our peers. Not always. Out of acting together and appearing in public, out of inserting ourselves into the world. Now, behind me is an image from the civil rights movement. If we lose our, our understanding for what might be true, and if we lose our hope that we can challenge this, then we are in a worrying situation. It means that we don't believe that we can challenge oppressive, terrible circumstances. And yet, to kind of draw on the uh, American writer James Baldwin, we need to demand the impossible, because history shows us time and time again the impossible being achieved. Now, we might have mixed views on Extinction Rebellion, but let's get there. Um, they're going to be disrupting London a lot next week. Some of you might be involved in this already. If not, if you don't know much about Extinction Rebellion, I think they're very interesting. Now, they would see themselves as an example of um, using the public space, of organising together in local groups and then taking to the streets. Having political life not as something that is between us and our phones, or us and what we read, but us and us as someone that's collective and public. One of the things that Extinction Ben and Chapman is something that happened in Ireland around abortion. Citizens' assemblies. Where we go outside of the world of referenda, we go outside of the world of first past the post, and we have an organised system where people representing different demographic groups are brought together to think hard and think at length and listen to different opinions and viewpoints and together deliberate and decide on what happens next. It's had great results. Extinction Rebellion say this is how we should sort out climate change, get to the zero emissions and have citizens' assemblies, not the first past the post system, working this through. You might agree, you might not. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it with some questions um, for Thursday. So do you agree? Are the facts under attack? Why do lies and untruths undermine our faith in democracy? Why is it then so important to speak truth to power? If we are for the truth, if we believe in the truth, then how do we champion it when many different groups and interested parties are saying that our facts will turn to facts? And do we need a new form of politics? A new form of truthful politics? Would it be based on a new kind of government, a new kind of democracy? I don't really know, if I'm honest. <laughs> this is the way I haven't got a truth at the end. And Hannah Arendt would say, the only way I'll find the answer to this is to discuss and deliberate with others. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you for patiently listening. Thank you.